0: This episode of The Energy Gang is brought to you by Atachi Energy. If you're enjoying this conversation, you should check out our podcast, Power Pulse, where we explore the transformation of the world's energy systems. Visit us at itachienergy.com backslash PowerPulse. Hello, and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. And this week, it's about the really fast-changing world of American energy policy. I'm Ed Crooks, and I'm joined today by Amy Myers Jaffe, one of our regulars on the Energy Gang, who's the Managing Director of the Climate Policy Lab at the Fletcher School of Government at Tufts University. Hello, Amy, how are you? Welcome back.
1: I'm great, Ed. Thanks for having me again.
0: And also today, we're joined for the first time by Dr. Paula Gant, who's the President and CEO of GTI Energy. GTI Energy is a research and training organization working on the energy transition. Now, Paula, I want you to tell us a little bit more about GTI energy in a moment and introduce yourself properly. But before we do that, I think the very first thing we have to do is start off with an apology. Amy and I were on the previous edition of the Energy Gang uh, a couple of weeks ago, as you may have heard. And one of the things we discussed then was Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and his comments that he didn't seem likely to vote for any climate and energy legislation, at least until the autumn and possibly not ever. So lo and behold, just a few days after that episode was recorded, The news broke that Senator Manchin had, in fact, reached a deal on legislation with Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, and that legislation would have a very substantial climate and energy component. The Inflation Reduction Act, as it's called, passed in the Senate last weekend, and it's been described as the most significant climate bill in history in the United States. And it's this bill that we're going to be spending most of our time talking about on the show today. So it looks like when we said that nothing seemed to be happening in terms of federal legislation, we were completely wrong.
1: Now, Ed, I have to interject here because I remember I warned you that President Biden might have some tricks up his sleeve and that we shouldn't count him out.
0: It's very true. You absolutely did say that. You were very right to insert that caveat. The other thing I think it's worth pointing out is that something we've seen right the way down the line from Senator Joe Manchin uh, throughout these negotiations on energy legislation under President Joe Biden, he has been consistently inconsistent, predictably unpredictable, if you like. So I think it's just about, forgivable. we're caught out a bit on the emergence of the Inflation Reduction Act and certainly a lot of other people were caught out too. So as I said, we are going to get on to discussing that act in detail in just a moment. Before we do, though, um, Paula, I promised I would give you a proper chance to introduce yourself, and I want to do that now. So I was wondering, perhaps you could tell, um, perhaps listeners who might not know you, talk a little bit about GTA Energy and, and what you do there and what that organization does, and also be interesting to hear just a little bit about your background and your career in energy and how you got to the position
2: you now hold. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Amy. It's great to be here with you two here today, uh, listening into this podcast. As a listener, you have a lot of fun. And it's a it's nice to get to have this conversation and to think out loud together of some of the really impactful events that are trying to shape our future going on right now. And at GTI Energy, we're very much focused on uh, shaping energy systems future. We're a nonprofit uh, research and development and training organization focused across the spectrum of energy systems, uh, focused on producing gases, liquids, efficiency, and infrastructure that will enable transitions to low-carbon and low-cost energy systems globally. So a pretty broad remit. Uh, We do a lot of work on from early stage uh, science and technology development through to uh, standing up uh, processes, engineered processes, and companies to get to scale technologies for production of increasingly low carbon liquids, gases, and also the infrastructure that's gonna make sure that we have those where we need them, when we need them. And particularly doing that in collaborative ways with our partners uh, from across uh, existing energy systems as well as new entrants.
0: Thanks, and as I was saying, you're president and CEO there. How did you get to that job? What's been your career path in energy?
2: Yeah, how I got here. Wow. A tremendous amount of um, fortune, I would say. I'm incredibly grateful to be at this point and able to uh, work with an incredibly talented group of individuals and industry partners and government partners to work collaboratively to figure figure out an open learning systems, how we're going to prove up technologies and deploy them and how I got here. Um was is a nonlinear path. Like most people, right, our career paths don't end up uh, being uh, linear. I am an economist, a microeconomist. I come to that uh, with an intense curiosity about how people make decisions. and and ultimately, in my career, it's been about how make people make decisions in groups and getting really serious about how um we deploy things that we understand in the short term in open systems of learning, and then how how we also get people invested. In the earlier stage of technology development, so we can de risk that experimentation.
0: Thank you very much indeed for sharing uh, that with us, giving us the benefit of your expertise on the show today. So, let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. We are obviously laying ourselves open to the danger of being caught out again by unexpected events. As we're recording this, the bill has not yet passed in the House, but it has passed in the Senate, and that was always going to be the difficult part, and it does now look very likely to become law. It's a pretty big bill, both in terms of length. It's, I think, 755 pages long. And also financially, it raises $739 billion, mostly from two sources, which is a new 15% corporate minimum tax rate and a set of measures to curb prices that the government pays for prescription drugs. And it takes that money and spends it using $300 billion to cut the budget deficit and $369 billion on energy and climate change. And those energy and climate change measures cover a huge range of sectors and technologies. There are expanded and extended tax credits for wind and solar and other renewables, uh, tax credits for battery storage, increased support for carbon capture and for hydrogen, tax credit for nuclear, expanded tax credits for electric vehicles and heat pumps. I could go on and on and on and probably fill the entirety of the rest of this podcast, but I won't do that. Let's try and step back a bit for a start and think about just how important this bill is, as I say, it's been described as the most important climate legislation ever passed in the us. Amy, when you think about it, when you look at this bill, does that kind of judgment seems fair? Is this really a massively important bit of legislation?
1: Uh, no question, Ed. And you know we have some sort of repetition effect. We're extending the tax credits for wind and solar, and we are adding even more charging stations and and doing some of the really fundamental things that had got kicked off a bit in the infrastructure bill. But we're also putting tax credits to other important technologies, whether that's hydrogen. So trying to get the private sector to kick into hydrogen and not have it just be some, you know, handful of big DOE demonstration projects. Um, Interesting, you know, we had some tax credits for carbon sequestration and storage, but now We're having sort of bigger program for that. And so, you know, that makes it very important. And the timing is critical because now we're going to start to prepare September, October for the November climate meetings in Egypt. And the United States will be able to bring a delegation with credibility because best estimates are that this bill, once implemented, will be able to put the United States on a trajectory to lower its emissions by something like 6.3 billion tons in cumulative greenhouse gas emissions. So that would be about 40% below 2005 levels. Uh, Had we only had the infrastructure bill and existing policies, we probably only were going to get to be 26 below 2005 by 2030. And that would have put us really out of reach to the sort of 50% net zero target that we really need to do to keep everybody in the global market aligned in the same net zero goals.
0: So that's, as you say, a 40% reduction does seem plausible. Quite a few modeling and forecasting groups have come up with that kind of number, which is obviously a very significant drop from two thousand five levels, it's not as much as the Biden administration wanted, right? Haven't they set the they set the goal of fifty uh, percent reduction by twenty thirty?
1: That is correct. That is correct. But you know, you have to walk before you run, and I, I think the important thing, uh, which I think Paula, you know, could be more elaborative on, is uh, you know, I, I had a, a journalist ask me. He said, "Are we going back to all of the above?" and um, you know, yes and no. I mean, we're just emphasizing things that build off of expanding our existing infrastructure. So how do we use the infrastructure we already have? Uh, How do we get people to convert that infrastructure to do things that are more low carbon? Uh, How do we beef up our manufacturing? So it really uh, was very comprehensive.
0: Yeah, that all of the above point is a really good one, I think. And It's well worth pointing out that this bill does include some measures that will help the oil and gas industry. And there seems to be a commitment to further legislation, which would also help the oil and gas industry in terms of getting new infrastructure such as pipelines built. But just, again, taking a step back from that, Paula, just in terms of your kind of broad sense of the bill, what do you make of it? And do you agree that it is really this very, very important step in terms of US policy?
2: Yeah. So just to echo a couple points you each made, whether we're talking about billions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars of new spending and investment, or we're talking about the billions in reductions, billions of tons of reductions that we think we'll get. This is a really big deal. Yes. This is the biggest climate policy that we've seen by far. And it's not just big because of those billion-dollar measurements. It's big because it signals um, something that's been in motion for about the past eight years. Moving from a focus on the early stages of areas of emissions that were easier to achieve with technologies that were closer at hand, um, particularly on sources that we can electrify, making really good progress and still a lot of progress to make, But a recognition that to really get to goal on keeping the planet below two degrees of warming by 2050, we're going to have to deeply decarbonize our entire economies. And if we go back to Paris, the the conference parties in Paris in 2015, a lot of focus on government action. A year later, we have in Marrakesh a lot of focus on private sector investments and commitments, and what we're seeing that harvested in this legislation. So not only are we focused now on economy-wide deep decarbonization, so beyond uh, sources that can be electrified into gases, liquids, fuels, chemicals, materials, heavy-duty transport, and the like.
0: So we have another Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, COP27, coming up in Egypt in November. Does this make a big difference then, do you think, to... The US position, as Amy was saying, is there something now where the US can kind of stand up internationally and say, look, we really are taking climate change seriously. Therefore, you, the other countries of the world, should join us in that effort and do the same.
2: I think it certainly does in not just its scale and ambition, but also in that it reflects the reality. And Amy touched on this a bit in something I believe very clearly. The energy systems of the future are going to be built on the energy systems of today. If we are just talking about how we're going to encourage the new technologies and new entrants into that space and not deal with how we're going to transition existing assets, existing infrastructure, and we're going to leverage the existing know-how operationally and technologically of the people in those systems, then we're not really serious about transition. This bill says we are, and that we will not just be bringing everybody along or recognizing this is about economic transformation. And that's getting really real, and, and, and the specifics in this legislation begin to deal with that. To me, that says we're really serious, and what that does, it means that a wide variety of interests, both incumbents and new entrants into this space, are vested in the success here, and that's very different than what we've seen before.
1: Let me add to that, that this bill, I think, partly became possible because there is embedded in the bill a recognition that we need energy supply this year because of the crisis in the Ukraine and and so forth. And so you have this sort of distinction between we're going to do something right now, this minute for energy supplies in the next couple of months. But then you also have this, you know, bigger, more important context, which is that we're not going to stop with that. We're going to take this long view of where the United States needs to be to be globally competitive in what's going to be a new energy system for the planet.
0: So Paula, then when you look at the legislation and you think about what that's doing, how is that helping then to kind of advance this transition in the most kind of concrete and real sense, which is people who are currently working in the oil and gas industry, using their skills and capabilities and shifting over to work on low carbon energy?
2: It's a great question. It's a great uh, analogy uh, that Amy draws that there's lots of know-how on complex energy systems already existing that we're just going to apply into the, in the future and that much of that exists in the oil and gas space and this legislation seems to begin reflecting that we do not have energy transition without economic transition and transitioning the existing industry
1: one of the things that people are modeling from this bill is that somewhere between 200 million tons of carbon to 400 million tons of carbon could come out of the atmosphere just from this carbon capture technology, which we haven't really emphasized in the past. You know, carbon capture technology has been this dog uh, that didn't bark. You know, people invested, it didn't work, it was too expensive. So, you know, hopefully there's going to be this effort today to make it more affordable and more successful.
0: So Paula, one of the things that's really interesting, I think, in the legislation. Is this introduction of a new methane fee, basically where companies are going to be charged with a, a charge that's kind of phased in over time for uh, methane that leaks? Interesting in uh, lots of ways. This is a real attempt to tackle the issue of the carbon footprint of the natural gas industry. It's also, uh, I think, the first ever fee charged by the federal government on carbon emissions in the U.S. So it's pretty significant kind of first step in that way. What are the consequences of that going to be? And how does the industry respond? And how does that help shift the energy industry towards a low carbon path?
2: Absolutely. It is interesting. This is the first climate fee, if you will. Um, it, there's also a nice runway before it's actually applicable um, out to 2026, which I think reflects work by the operators of, of, of natural gas systems with Uh, the Biden administration, with Congress to actually shape this legislation to deliver what will be most useful for us in getting methane emissions down. So what we have right now is a lot of ambition around removing methane leakages from natural gas systems and a whole bunch of technologies that have been suggested that can help us detect and measure those emissions. But what we need is increased collaboration and research and testing of how those technologies are actually going to be put to use and how we're going to use the data from that by you know operators out in the field using sensors, using different types of detection, and in taking the data from that and putting it in, into our decision-making processes in a way that we can actually reduce leakages of methane faster. That reality of we've got technologies, we've got operational processes, we have will, but we need more We need faster learning, and we need greater confidence in the data that we're getting off of those technologies so that we can drive down emissions reflects alignment from the natural gas industry with Congress and with the Biden administration on, we've got to reduce these emissions. So there's a really strong dose of reality and pragmatism and progress in the methane provisions in in this legislation.
1: And in the end, when you have that runway, and then you back it up with this ever-increasing fee that we're gonna prove out this technology. We're gonna have you not estimate your emissions. We're gonna have you tell us exactly what your emissions are using sensors and other modern technology. And then if you then still continue to leak because you know you don't care or you don't believe in climate change, then guess what? We're gonna have all these measurement technologies and we're gonna be able to charge you for that pollution in a way that might be painful to you and might convince your shareholders that they want you to clean up.
2: And leading companies out there are putting putting sort of their um, money where their mouth is, or mouth where their money is, whatever, whatever way it goes here, <laughs> right? And in working on getting to this and recognize the imperative, particularly because we have this incredible opportunity uh, to continue to export natural gas around the world, not just to increase the energy security of our trading partners and allies, but also as a low-carbon um, long-term transition fuel. And reducing methane leakages is vital to that.
0: So what about other interesting specifics in the bill then? Carbon capture seems to be a big one. There's uh, increased support for that. What's the significance of that?
2: I'll take a perspective on that from the oil and gas industry workers. Lots of knowledge of the subsurface and storing molecules underground this a uh, 45q tax credit that's been extended out to 2033 that's a pretty good runway for uh, a legislation uh, an incentive of this type means that there's some certainty for companies and investors that want to begin to pivot their understanding of how you store molecules in the subsurface from hydrocarbons into CO2 and and ultimately hydrogen. So that's existing workforce being given a line of sight to their role in long-term energy systems in this carbon capture credit extension. Also, it expands the field division beyond just sequestering CO2 below surface, into beginning to think about how we're going to turn CO2 to value in industrial processes, how we're going to sequester CO2 and chemicals and materials and put it to use. And that's the ring we all really have to grab for in energy transition.
1: And you know, Ed, just to tell you an anecdotal story, years ago, when ConocoPhillips, the oil company, was owned by DuPont, they had a patented technology to take carbon and turn it into like a material that could be used to build a car like instead of steel. And they were trying to get a deal with one of the car makers and it was sort of getting along and then then you know merger and acquisition world uh ConocoPhillips was spun out of DuPont and the patent just sort of went by the wayside. So, you know, we're trying to get back to some of these creative ideas for how to take the carbon and not just bury it. You know, could we turn it into something useful? that would keep it stored and keep it out of the atmosphere. And that's that's really a big benefit if we can get there for how we're going to take something that's such a negative today and try to turn it into something useful.
0: Right, right. And other specifics in the bill then, just want to quickly touch on tax credit for nuclear power, expanded, extended, more generous tax credits for wind and for solar, These look like delivering huge boosts to the wind and solar industries. I was looking at some modelling that my colleagues at Wood Mackenzie have done. They're saying the solar installations will be 67% higher over the next 10 years as a result of the bill passing than they would be if the bill didn't pass. um, Wind installations 40% higher. So massive increases for those sectors. So the bill is going to make a huge difference, we think, to those renewable power sectors. But I want to circle back, Paul, to something you were saying earlier, which I think is really important about, as you were saying, the hard to decarbonize parts of the economy. And the issue that actually decarbonizing electricity in some ways is the easy part, but there's a lot of stuff also that needs to be done in terms of decarbonizing fuels. And you know, essentially, you could say we're getting increasingly good at delivering clean electrons, we're not so good with clean molecules. And I know this is something that you and I were talking about earlier. But can you talk a bit about why you think that's important? And what is the significance of the kinds of things that the bill is doing, and that are happening more generally, in terms of working on, as I say, not just power, but the rest of the economy?
2: The legislation recognizes. It seems that we're going to need liquid fuels for quite some time, and um, and that's whether they're um, in heavy-duty applications, maritime, air transport, or I think there's a, re- a reality that we're going to need them in passenger vehicles in many parts of the world for quite some time. Why is that? Liquid fuels are uh, really great. Uh, dense way to store and move energy and deliver energy right and um the, so the challenge and, and the recognition is again how do we take advantage of existing infrastructure and delivery systems to to provide the energy we need in the future and sustainable aviation fuels and and how that's dealt with in the legislation begins to deal with the reality of we're going to need liquid fuels long term for aviation particularly over the next 20 years. We may make some breakthroughs in um, hydrogen-powered air transport or um, electrification, um, but we're certainly going to need liquid fuels in the the global energy portfolio uh, for aviation. And so there's some, I mean, very significant steps to create production tax credits and um, fund uh, aviation technology programs. This is really an important pragmatic step. I mean, it's it's just the beginning, quite frankly. Um, but the focus on sustainable aviation fuels reflects the reality that that's where companies see the opportunity to prove up a technology and deliver it into a market that is demonstrating a willingness to pay a premium uh, for a sustainable fuel. And the, the incentives that are contained in this bill start to... Uh, uh, minimize the delta between that premium and what production costs are expected to be over the coming decade, You know, start to, to reduce that differential. But we're very we're very bullish about what these these tax uh, incentives and credits and programs can mean for accelerating the pace of the demonstrations of technologies that we're involved in and we're seeing others involved in. One I'm particularly excited about is Shell's demonstration of our IH squared technology in Bangalore, where they're producing uh, a drop-in diesel and a drop-in jet fuel. Again, really important that we have drop-in fuels because that allows us to use existing infrastructure and delivery systems.
0: So what is that? That's a biofuel, is it?
2: Yeah, really important. Uh, embedded in the concept of st- sustainable aviation fuels is that we're producing these fuels um, from uh, biomass materials. You know, wood, forestry, uh, agricultural waste, uh, municipal waste. This is not. This is waste uh, streams that otherwise don't don't have a use. So, in, in with regard to the IH squared technology that I reference for us. This is an advanced technology that uses a catalyst process to uh, remove oxygen from biomass and from that produce a syngas that you can use to make a variety of liquid fuels, whether it's sustainable aviation fuel, diesel, gasoline. And there's a variety of technologies out there. What we need to do over the coming seven to nine years is demonstrate those at scale, prove them up, and figure out what's going to work because we're going to need a whole bunch of them around the world.
0: And the idea is with having that kind of biofuel, then you get away from those food versus fuel competition issues, which have kind of bedeviled the first generation of biofuels.
2: Absolutely. These are waste streams and and they also get us uh, pretty far along on our GHG reduction targets. The IH2 technology, for example, is estimated to create a 92% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions relative to fossil alternatives. That puts us a long way in the right direction.
0: Yeah, no, because I was about to ask exactly that question. Again, we've been sort of framing this uh, conversation in terms of these sectors being more difficult. As I say, we know how to get to low carbon power very easily with wind and solar and nuclear. These kind of fuels are more difficult. But you so say you can get these very big reductions in emissions. Is it realistic to think of these things being deployed at scale on that 10, 20 year time horizon you're talking about?
2: I think it's realistic to think that they'll be proved up at scale in a, a broad array of processes within the ten-year time frame and deployed. Will they be getting um, getting to significant contributions uh, to our fuels portfolio in the twenty-year time frame? Right. Yeah, we've we've got some lead times still on these on these, but that's the importance that i pointed to earlier of more robust collaboration uh, for example on ih squared we filed for our first patent in 2009 um, we licensed the technology maybe a year later and we're in 2022 right uh, and, and this is with a major international company that has a very serious r&d approach and very disciplined approach to scaling technologies and we're very happy with how this is going but if we need to Replicate that across a variety of fuels productions, whether they're biomass or or uh, or other or carbon capture technologies. We're going to need to increasingly find ways to do that uh, with more actors involved at once, and with or more open learning, so we can reduce the time scale, because we we just don't have the time. And you, the, your your question's a good one. I am bullish, but we're going to need more aggressive collaboration and open learning to get to goal. This episode of The Energy Gang is brought to you by Atachi Energy.
0: If you're enjoying this conversation, you should check out Atachi Energy's own podcast, Power Pulse, where we explore the transformation of the world's energy systems to advance a sustainable energy future for all. Recent episodes focus on opportunities for offshore wind in the U.S., the unique contributions of women to the energy industry, and the challenge of meeting EV fleet charging demand. Visit us at itachienergy.com backslash Power Pulse.
1: And then there's going to be competition because, for example, there's another group of former aviation executives and technologists that are developing these fuel capsules. So think like a beer can, but, you know, at a large scale, that can be both the portable fuel tank in an airplane uh, that feeds a fuel cell, or it could be a way that you're just going to transport hydrogen, right? So you're going to put these tanks these like barrel tanks on in trucks or on ships and you're gonna be able to move hydrogen around. Um, and so you have this company, Universal Hydrogen, they say they've raised $62 million, which is, you know, not too much money for a complex technology like this, but they're saying they're going to try to get, you know, demonstrations flights off, you know, this year and next year. And they, again, like Paul is saying uh, with the biofuels, They have big partners, Mitsubishi, Tencent, GE, Time Ventures, right? You have a lot of big names involved in in this totally different solution. Um, And so, you know, I think the beauty of the the, uh, Inflation Reduction Act is it's not picking winners, right? It's saying if you're a private sector company and you have something you think that you would do, but you need a little bit of a help to get over the, you know, the valley of death, as we call it, Uh, The federal government's here to back good ideas. And it could be, you know, different ideas. And that's really the point. And geographically, there's some place where waste is a huge problem and waste to energy solutions are absolutely needed. And there are going to be other places that have offshore wind and other kinds of solutions where making green hydrogen is going to be cheap. And we're going to need these capsules to move the hydrogen around because it's not clear how we're moving the hydrogen around.
0: Okay. Absolutely hear what you say, and I agree, a lot of that is very exciting. I wanted to raise one other issue, though, which is starting to kind of bubble up a bit more, about hydrogen and the environmental impact of hydrogen. So we've been talking about hydrogen's uh, importance as a low-carbon, zero-carbon fuel replacement for natural gas, perhaps a replacement for liquid fuels in some cases. It is something that's backed pretty heavily in the Inflation Reduction Act. But just recently, quite a few people have started to raise um, concerns about the environmental impact of hydrogen. It is true that hydrogen does not release carbon dioxide when it's burned, but it does, when it's burned, uh, create nitrogen oxides, and it does also create water vapour, and water vapour is itself a greenhouse gas. There are also issues with just hydrogen itself. Hydrogen Uh, It's a very small molecule, and it can escape pretty easily when it escapes into the atmosphere. It's what they call an indirect greenhouse gas. Essentially, I think the effect is that um, it reacts with hydroxyl radicals. Let me see if I'm getting the chemistry right. But basically, um, hydroxyl radicals are one of the things that break down uh, methane in the atmosphere and therefore reduce its uh, global warming impact. But if hydrogen gets into the atmosphere, then it reacts with hydroxyl uh, radicals, great water, And uh, that means then there's less uh, hydroxyl available to uh, remove the methane. If I've got that chemistry wrong, please do let us know. But anyway, broad point being, as I say, hydrogen is an indirect greenhouse gas. And there's been some interesting interesting stuff from the Environmental Defense Fund, which has been making quite a lot of the running in this debate. There's a good quote here from them. They said, done right, hydrogen could be a key climate solution, a fuel with near zero climate impacts. Done wrong, hydrogen could be worse for the climate in the near term than the fossil fuels it's intended to replace. So, Amy, what do you make of that argument?
1: You know, first of all, we have to talk about how we're going to use the hydrogen because if we're putting the hydrogen in a fuel cell, we're not burning it, and so therefore the question of NOx um, uh, is is irrelevant because you're not going to have NOx. But but the other thing about NOx is that we you know currently have NOx from a lot of different things we do. You have running in a truck, you know, it, it, from traditional uh, uh, a burning of fuels in generators. And so we have NOx control devices. Um, and, and also for burning hydrogen, you know, the question is really what technologies are coming. And so one of the critiques has been uh, when people are blending, using a natural gas hydrogen blend, Um, Here in the United States, we have some some, uh, pilot projects, Um, and some of the companies have come up with solutions uh, that will, you know, control the NOx emissions, and it's just a little more expensive. So it's not something that where there's no technical solution. And then the water vapor question is a really complex science question, and I'm not a scientist, and so therefore I'm a little reluctant to weigh in on the subject of water vapor, but For the listeners who are very science-oriented and might read more want to call in and say, Amy Jaffe, should really stop talking science because she's not a scientist. You know, whichever way you want to go, um, more water vapor in the atmosphere leads to more cloud formation. And some scientists argue, well, you know, more clouds uh, can actually cool uh, the Earth because less sunlight can get through the clouds. Uh, But then other scientists have pointed out that if there's more condensed water in the atmosphere, uh, that could make the greenhouse effect of uh, cumulative emissions in the atmosphere much worse. And so I do think we need um, more research on that so that we have a clear scientific answer. Um, And then again, maybe again, you know, some of these research dollars need to go on to minimizing the amount of water vapor that comes out from using hydrogen. I mean, one of the big problems in energy is that, you know, you're converting something and then there's typically a waste stream.
0: No, absolutely. No. And I think, I mean, my understanding, again, likewise with the caveat, I'm not a scientist either, but I think that's exactly right. Broadly what you said on the water vapor question, which is it's kind of TLDR It's complicated. It's not at all clear. Definitely more research is needed into that. But also, I want to agree with your other point, which is to say it is absolutely possible to uh, use hydrogen in ways that minimize its environmental impact and its climate impact in particular. And what we need to be doing is developing those technologies and making sure those are the ones that get deployed. Now, Paula, I know this is something you're looking at, right? And this is something you're interested in. This is something you're interested in, which is... You know, given that uh, hydrogen could potentially have a lot of advantages, how do you make sure that you maximize those advantages and minimize the downsides?
2: And I, in, in that regard, I'm going to glom onto what, something both of you have said, and as well as the research that you're pointing to, says in order for hydrogen to be the Swiss army knife of decarbonization of economies, we've got to get it right. Yes. We have to get everything right. That's the whole point across the board. Everything that we use in energy transition, we have to account for the unintended consequences, right, or the externalities from it. And hydrogen is no different in that regard. And as you've have noted, that's about continuing research and inquiry um, and evolution of operational practices, as well as things like technologies for reducing uh, the NOx emissions from combustion uh, hydrogen in power generation. And there's research underway that's focused on that. On, it's, that's about combustor designs. Like th- That is literally not rocket science. And there's lots of research going on, on right now to do that. Solvable, as, as Amy pointed out. We've solved it in a, a bunch of other instances. Likewise, with regard to the impacts of atmospheric hydrogen, we are just not far along in the science enough to really understand what the implications are we do think there's a good bit underway that could probably begin to help us make sure we're asking the right questions. It's going to be released in the next six months or so, because lots of people are turning to this. But this is not a time to, to get ahead of ourselves. We need to understand the impacts of hydrogen in the atmosphere. And we also need to not to make sure that we have better than wild guess estimations of what's leaking into the atmosphere and really get to the work on establishing the methods that we're going to determine what might be leaking and, 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 and how to stop it. But right now there's a lot of uh, it, it sort of conjecture too early to call, but we need to focus on asking the right questions and getting the answers.
1: And there is this mindset that, you know, federal funds are available. So I need to viciously attack this technology. So we get more money in this technology, right? So the battery crowd, you know, I've seen the battery crowd talk down nuclear and, and, and so forth. So, you know, we, we need to move away from that because the scale at which we need solutions uh, is so big. And truly, you know, some, some solutions need more water. Other solutions need other kind of inputs that might not be available in a particular location. Like, we need to have multiple solutions.
2: I think that's a great point. To draw an example of how we've learned in history, how we've learned this exact example of focusing on where we can make a difference, a little over a decade ago, attention started focusing on methane emissions from natural gas systems. And the way that attention was drawn was very combative. It drew battle lines. And we've been working our way back from those battle lines for the past decade. We're finally in the past literally couple of years where we've got increasing amounts of people on both sides of that question rowing in the same direction. Let's not set up hydrogen the same way. Let's make sure we're asking the right questions. We're pointing to how we frame up the right research programs to get them. Um, But let's not draw battle lines here because we need it all.
0: That's a great point. Yeah, 100% agree with that. So two other quick things I just very briefly wanted to touch on on the Inflation Reduction Act. One is this question, Amy, of uh, domestic manufacturing. A lot of the way the tax credits are designed, if you look at tax credits, for instance, for uh, EVs, a lot of the tax credits for renewable energy for storage, a lot of it is skewed essentially to favor U.S. domestic manufacturing. And the idea is clearly to develop a U.S. industry, to create jobs in the U.S., and to build a domestic supply chain for clean energy technologies. What do you make of that effort?
1: Well, you know, super important, and it's important for more than one reason. You know, if COVID taught us anything, It's that relying on international supply chains for things that are very vital can be highly problematic. And so there's, you know, one school of thought, which is that we have to be able to process metals. We need to be able to manufacture our own EVs. We need to be able to have our own batteries uh, manufactured here in the United States. We can't be relying on just solely on foreign suppliers. And part of that is simply national security right? So if I'm needing some of these things for, for military application, or I'm just needing it because I need to have my citizens be able to move around uh, and, and, and conduct economic activity, you know, we want some of it to be able to be produced here. We want to know that we, we have secured that. And then, of course, there's the point you made, which is that if we're doing that, the jobs will stay here and they're not going to go to other countries. But I think that, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, we had no Republican members of Congress uh, support uh, this uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Because when I speak to members of Congress from the Republican side of the aisle, they're all very concerned about our competitive position with China and the future position of the United States economy in, in global markets, and how do we you know, continue to keep our very strong economic position globally and and that really, you know, if you believe in the energy transition, which you should, because it's already happening, as Paula's already pointed out, then that means that United States industry needs to have the products and the workers to do all that. And that's what this bill is about. It's making sure that the United States economy is competitive going forward.
2: In an example specific to the bill, in the bill that's not specific to manufacturing, but speaks to this point Is there's now a a production tax credit for hydrogen. This marries up from with the funding from previous legislation that went to DOE for eight billion dollars for hydrogen hubs. So what we're doing is we're get sort of two pieces of the equation here. You're getting the infrastructure built up to produce and you're creating the market for the off takers. And that relates to manufacturing and industrial policy. How? It means that you're creating a fundamental base of the next generation of our economy that is not only low carbon, but cost competitive, in which we're exporting those technologies and processes, not just the outputs from them around the world. That's middle class jobs. That's economic competitiveness. Next generation.
1: And Ed, and, and, you know, I think the thing that when people are very partisan in the way they think about these issues, they kind of miss the point that, There are a lot of companies that are considered on the wrong side of the ledger that are already working on these technologies. There are a lot of companies that are, you know, you would think of as a natural gas company or think about as a pipeline company who are moving ahead in hydrogen because they want to get an early mover advantage, right? You've got other companies that realize they can get a carbon credit from the state of California if they do some facility, then trade into the carbon market in California. So you know, maybe if the Congress is a little more brave in the future, they might you know understand the role that carbon markets can play in a positive way. And then you have companies that are thinking ahead to how they need to be involved in the carbon removals market, or they need to have verified offsets um, because they have committed to net zero. And they know that means that they have to have offsets. And they have to have removals for some parts of their business where it's going to be hard to eliminate emissions. And so you have a lot of rowing in the right direction from the very industry that people call dirty industries. And this bill gives them a leg up to not use the excuse, well, you know, some of these things aren't commercial yet and they, they, they I, I'd be willing to try it, but I can't lose money. Well, now I'm getting this tax incentive and that's going to help me push the button to move it forward. And we know from wind and solar that when you push the button and move it forward, even batteries, you push the button and move it forward, it turns out to be a very cost-effective progress where all of a sudden, you know, my electricity cost comes down or your, you know, fuel cost for your vehicle comes down because companies can take this step of shoving down the cost of these sort of emerging technologies.
0: There's much more we could say about this bill. It's a really interesting and important bit of legislation. I fear, though, that we do um, just about have to wrap it up. Just before we get off the bill, the other thing I'm really enjoying, I have to say, is the title of it. Isn't that brilliant? I
2: I have to giggle every time I say it.
0: It is just hilarious, isn't it? It's just such a kind of a brilliant, like...
2: We'll take big, bold action on climate, whatever you have to call it.
0: (laughs) Exactly, yes. Yeah, that's a very, very smart bit of branding, I think. Um, So as I say, um, do just about have to leave it there. We are definitely, I'm sure, going to be talking further about this legislation in the future. Just before we go, though, of course, we have our um, traditional free electrons, the um, kind of brief uh, personal points that uh, people have brought in. Again, going to call out as i did uh, last time and say that if anyone else has got any kind of quick points they want to make um we'd be delighted to include them here please do send them in um probably the best thing to do is to uh send them to us on twitter where we're at the energy gang or you could use the hashtag uh, hashtag eg free electrons so um, please do send those in but for now uh paula what's yours
2: a free Electron. I, after 20 years, got a new car last year. I'm very excited about it. Her name is Diana. And, when, and I'm excited. And everyone, when they see it, says, is it electric? I say, nope. Runs on gasoline. And I just find it very interesting uh, how many people have the perspective that electricity is the only way to go, that the car is the future. So I talk about how we're working to decarbonize liquid fuels. And I think it's really interesting how complicated uh, energy transition is, given the conversation we just had, and how prone we are to just simplify it, as if there's just one simple answer that every car needs to be electrified, rather than looking at the the full impacts of all of the different ways that we transport ourselves around and try and solve for all of those.
0: Yeah, very interesting. You could call it a free molecule rather than a free electron, I guess, that one. There you go. Uh, yeah, Amy, what's yours?
1: Well, so mine is following up mine from last week. As you recall, I mentioned that I had Twitter trolled uh, an EV charging company for having some unrepaired stations for a number of days, and that successfully uh, brought about the repairs. Jigger Shah, your previous, uh, energy gang founder and brilliant entrepreneur, uh, followed up on that trolling to say that the state of Connecticut has passed rules about how quickly Charging station companies need to repair anything that goes down. And he called upon all states in the United States to follow suit with Connecticut and make there be a minimum standard for repair of charging stations. So that's that's mine today. Uh, as an EV driver, I'm very concerned about making sure that if I'm planning my trip and there's a station there, that it's in good repair and I can plug in.
0: Yeah, that is a great point. I saw Jigger tweeting about that. That is a really interesting point. Uh, and the argument that it should in some way be a regulatory mandate on companies, as you say, as it is in Connecticut, but it should be in other states and across the country as well to say, if you're going to operate these charging points, you really need to make sure that they're operational and you need, you need to make sure that within a certain time frame they are going to get repaired, because if you don't do that, you know, they're pointless. Yeah, I mean it happens, but it's a yeah, it's a rare event, and it's it's something that everybody talks about when it happens. Exactly, exactly. And and uh, EV charging points should definitely be the same. So my one is also a follow-up actually from last week. We we're talking last week about the carbon footprint of the rock industry and the ways that you could reduce that. And one of the suggestions was that uh, rock stars could use their private jets less. And shortly after this, there was this survey out from a marketing and research agency that said, uh, here are the carbon footprints of some leading celebrities based on their private jet usage. And the numbers were really pretty shocking. And it's commonplace for people to be using their private jets for flights of just 17 minutes. And one of the particular ones they called out in that was Taylor Swift, And uh, Taylor Swift's spokesman uh, spoke out in her defense saying it was terribly unfair, this is very misleading, because very often when the private jet, when her private jet is flying, it's not her that's using it, it's because she's lent it out to her friends and family so that they could use it. I think, I'm not certain that's a great defense, actually. And I suppose, I mean, clearly, people have been saying, well, this is a sort of superficial kind of issue, and... You won't solve climate change by stopping Taylor Swift flying in their private jet, which is clearly 100% accurate. However, what I do think it's quite interesting is in what it says about the energy transition and decarbonization and the issue of to what extent we have to change our lifestyles. And, you know, there seems to be a very kind of polarized debate. And some people say, well, you know, we basically need to demolish capitalist society as we know it today and everyone needs to um you know live off the land and that's the only way that climate change can be addressed and then other people say no no that's completely unrealistic nothing about our lifestyles can change at all in the energy transition because if you try and make people change in any way they won't accept that and you'll get resistance and therefore decarbonization will never happen And I find personally both of those um, opposing points of view pretty unsatisfactory. And maybe there is a sort of position somewhere in the middle that says a lot of stuff can stay the same about our lifestyles, but maybe some things do actually have to change. And maybe the amount that we fly is one of them, and maybe in particular the amount that people find flying private jets is one of them. And actually that to some degree we are going to have to live somewhat different lives, or in particular, it's not gonna be possible for everyone in the world to lead the kind of lives that Americans and other high energy consuming people lead at the moment.
2: So I'll throw uh, just a wrinkle in there. As an economist, generally people want more utility, uh, want more uh, productivity and comfort. So taking that to heart, I think uh, another, another path of the ones you've mapped out or possibilities is that we just need to continue to innovate the heck out of things to reduce the impacts of our consumption because it's unlikely that, uh, and we always talk about it, the developing world wants some, some semblance of a lifestyle that we have. So we need to innovate and create the, the disruptions that are going to reduce the impacts of having comfort and productivity.
0: Yeah. And actually, ideas about tackling climate change by getting rid of economic growth, shrinking people's lives and people's lifestyles, essentially, I do agree that those are totally unrealistic. People are never going to go for that. So that is all from the Energy Gang for this week. Uh, Thank you very much, Amy.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And thank you, Paula, for joining us for the first time. I hope we can have you back again soon. Thanks, Ed. And many thanks to all of you for listening. Please do let us know what you think. Uh, we're always keen to get your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. As I was saying earlier, we're on Twitter at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.